0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night.
1: Just a warning. We mentioned sex work and violence in this segment. Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. And today we are talking about a franchise that's been getting audiences hot and bothered for over a decade, all through the magic of Mike. Yep, I'm talking about Magic Mike.
2: Well, that's who the law says that you cannot talk. But I think I see a lot of lawbreakers up in that house.
1: This weekend, the third and final Magic Mike movie is hitting theaters, and if you've somehow never heard of Magic Mike, let me give you the lowdown. Channing Tatum plays a very talented dancer named Mike Lane, and he has a lot of raunchy fun with his band of sexy male strippers. To celebrate Magic Mike's last dance, we're gonna take a long, hard look at how the media portrays male strippers and what strip shows project onto the desires of straight women. Joining me is Dr. Katie Pilcher, who teaches sociology at Aston University in the UK. What's something that you've seen in a strip club that's genuinely made you laugh?
3: Um, One of the managers asked me if I wanted to get on stage myself.
1: Dr. Pilcher studies male strippers both in media and in the field.
3: One of the staff members was missing that night and they wanted to do the Danny and Sandy sketch Oh, from Greece. Yeah, and I was a bit like, mm, I'm not sure if this is really in my job remit. So I, I said no. Performance averted. Yeah.
1: Now, Dr. Pilcher may have avoided the spotlight, but our little dance is just about to begin. As Jada Pinkett Smith famously says in Magic Mike XXL. It's not bro time, it's show time. Are you guys ready? Dr. Pilcher, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a minute. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So you've done a lot of research into this, and it seems like things kind of kicked off in the way that we think about male strippers in media now with The Full Monty, another film about a group of guys who are strapped for cash and turn to creating their own strip show.
3: All right, yeah. We may not be young. We may not be pretty. We may not be right good. But we're here. And for one night only... We're going for the
1: Full Monty. What were some of the tropes of male strippers in the Full Monty setup?
3: Yeah, so in the Full Monty, the film is very much based around what I've called this sort of idea of like a fragile masculinity. So these men are at a very particular low point in their lives. You know, it was Thatcher's Britain where they were rolling back the heavy industries. Lots of men had lost their traditional manual labour jobs. So you've got this sort of fragile masculinity thing going on in terms of social class and strippings presented as this like last ditch resort for the men at this low point in their lives. And Mm -hmm. then also the men are trying to sort of regain their masculinity in other ways. And I think they do this through some quite sexist representations in the film and also some racist representations.
1: Right. Like their masculinity is in question because they're being physically vulnerable for money. They're getting by on their sex appeal.
3: Yeah, definitely. And because, I mean, stripping is a stigmatized occupation, isn't it? And it's also mm-hmm. historically a female occupation as well. Right. So, for example, one dancer would say things like, well, I style my body this way because I don't want to look like a greasy porn star. So, you know, he'd sort of like yeah. draw upon other sex related work to say well I'm not like that you know my work is better than that Mm. putting other men down to build themselves up.
1: Hmm. You see some of those tropes continuing on into Magic Mike with Mm. you know Mike the main character being at the end of his road at the beginning of the first film and turning to stripping to pay his bills but the Full Monty which came out in 1997 and the original Magic Mike film, these two films are separated by 15 years. Did anything change in how these movies wrote male strippers? Like, was there any advancement, I guess, between
3: The Full Monty and Magic Mike? I think, I mean, I think um, Full Monty was more obviously overtly racist. But I mean, I think Mm-hmm. One of the things that's really interesting about the Magic Mike ones as well is that they present this sort of idea that like men know what women want. And one of the things that I wonder whether the new film is going to do slightly differently with that discourse, because mm-hmm. Channing Tatum has sort of said he wants the third film to be a bit more equal. He's keen that there's a female lead.
4: We, I really wanted like a central character that it was... At least an equal, if not more, even more of a
2: central character of, yeah. of Mike, you know, because it, it, it should be told at some point through a female's perspective, like what.
4: He saw
3: the other two is. films as quite, um he even described it sort of films for men, even though yeah. they were supposed to be for women kind of thing.
4: Yeah. So like the first two movies were about men and kind of weirdly made for women. So they were yeah. like these feather fish type we thank films. You.
3: That- yeah. <laughs> And in the trailer, there's, you know, there's this kind of idea, Salma Hayek says. I want every woman that walks into this theater to feel that a woman
2: can have whatever she wants,
3: whenever she wants. Um, and what we've seen in, uh, in the previous couple of films and also in my research in the clubs themselves is that there's actually, you know, that idea that men know best what women want, like better than what women know mm-hmm. themselves. So I wonder whether mm. that's going to be different or obviously whether there's going to be the same old sort of ideas within that. You know, some of the male dancers would talk to me in interviews about how, you know, well, women don't like full nudity. They like a journey. They like a story. Um, women like to see the the fantasy hero that's going to um, swoop them off their feet. Whereas some of the women were saying, well, actually, that's not necessarily what I want. That's quite a narrow view of women's sexual pleasure. I mean, I think... One of the things that is interesting about particularly the second Magic Mike film as well is that um, they show women being able to have more intimate encounters with the dancers. So women being able to go Mm -hmm. to more private rooms, for example. And I think that's something that was quite interesting because actually some of the women customers that I interviewed that had been to male strip shows in the UK, that was what they really wanted. They were saying men get to go to strip clubs and have a one on one encounter in a private room out the back right like champagne room is what we call it in yeah the whereas yeah. for them they were told that they had to sit and watch the show they they weren't allowed to sort of go up on stage or interact too much with the dancers during the performance but then it also you know it does give women a space to show themselves as sort of actively desiring and to do that in a public space as well to so to show mm-hmm. themselves as interested in sexual
1: expression it's interesting like um i recently rewatched magic mike xxl and it's funny now that you pointed out there's kind of like two things that are happening in that film because i think that one is is markedly more i think directed at women yeah there's definitely this idea of like these men being able to like bring the fantasy and make your dreams come true and you know there's a lot of things that seem exciting and pleasing to watch but you know to your point I noticed that still most of the women who are being brought pleasure throughout the film are still experiencing a very sort of like, by the book, experience of of male, female sexuality and seduction. Mm. Sometimes Magic Mike XXL feels like it's kind of talking out of both sides of its mouth, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, you think that the female gaze in Magic Mike is actually not liberatory at all. What do you mean by that?
3: I think that I think that it just it tends to sort of still portray this idea that men are the ultimate ones that have the key to unlocking what women want. Andre and Ken in Magic Mike too present themselves as healers. They don't even
2: ask them what they want. All we gotta do is ask them what they want. Yeah. And when they tell you it's a beautiful thing, man, it's like we're like we're like healers or something.
3: In the first yeah, one, you've right. got Dallas talking um, to the kid and he's giving him this sort of pet talk.
2: You are the husband that they never had. You are that dreamboat guy that never came along. You are the one-night stand. That You're
3: going to fulfil every woman's fantasy and again, in Magic Might like, 2, you've got that scene at the gas station. with um, Richie. Yeah, Richie. We just <laughs> yeah. call him Richie. Yeah, where, you know, <laughs> yeah. that he's sort of been egged on by his colleagues to put a smile on the face of the female cashier. That is What's your reason, goal, man.
4: What? You got to go in there and no, make a smile. That's boy, it. That's dude. all you yes. got
3: to do. To me, that feeds into this sort of age-old sexual harassment, really. A woman can be walking along the street and a man tells her to right. smile. You know, and that's what the whole challenge is sort of set around. You know, it is a very amusing performance, the way he has got the water bottle, the way he uses everything as props and things. And, you know, ultimately he achieves his goal and she does smile at the end. But I don't know, it just, to me, it feeds into some of these sort of, he's going to be able to crack a smile from even the the most stern woman kind of idea.
1: Me, myself, personally, when I think back to working in retail, I would have loved... For a character like Richie to come into my job <laughs> and start some sort of body roll striptease, that would have been exciting for me. Um, however, I noticed when rewatching that scene, Richie does this whole striptease. He's, like you said, he's poured water all over his body. He's gyrating in front of the register, you know, and then he asks the, the cashier, like, How much for the cheetahs and the water? And she finally smiles and begins like laughing, you know, despite herself in response. But the camera cuts immediately from her smile to all of his friends who are outside looking through the window, cheering because she smiled. And that's the end of the scene. Yeah. We don't necessarily return to this person. Um, It's like, to me, that sort of editing choice communicates, it's less important that this woman is experiencing joy and more important that they were able to check the smile off of a list of some sort. Yeah,
3: exactly. Totally. Yeah. It's like his, you know, it's more about his achievement rather than her pleasure kind of thing.
1: In your research, you went to a few strip clubs in London where you said, you know, as you've mentioned that you talked to both workers and customers. How did you see the female gaze playing out in these clubs? That were geared towards straight women that featured male dancers in this way.
3: Yeah. So I looked at two venues, and both venues had very set stage shows each week. So the dancers would perform, you know, to similar songs each week, you know, and they'd have the fantasy hero costumes. They might be a firefighter, Mm. a sailor. And for some of the women, this was exactly what they were looking for. So one customer, for example, I can still remember her saying, you know, oh, he looked like my. Exact fantasy man. He looked like Richard Gere. Whereas some of them found it quite violent. You know, sometimes they'd be grabbed by dancers, thrown over their shoulder. You know, just sort of picked up, and they found that quite, you know, non-consensual and didn't really enjoy it. And found it quite embarrassing. So that's sort of interesting in terms of the the female gaze. Um, and I think it was it was mixed reviews. <laughs>
1: I wonder, what reflections on society did you walk away with from these visits? Like, in, in what ways are these clubs a microcosm of how we view sexuality between men
3: and women? I do think that these are quite contained spaces. And the, to me, the intimacy within them is very much manufactured, which I think, you know, ends up containing and regulating women's sexuality and what they can express. They're told to sit in a certain way and they're told that they can only interact with the dancers at a particular time. They're told that they should drink alcohol. They're told when they should drink alcohol, even sometimes in the breaks it's announced, you know, now it's time to go and get a drink. And so although there's certainly things that women can do in those spaces that they couldn't necessarily do in other spaces, they're still very much contained and scripted.
1: Hmm. You know, in talking with the team and getting ready to have this conversation with you, we kind of felt that strip clubs that cater to straight women, are not necessarily about desire or sexuality. Like after all, many people go in big groups or even with their sisters or with their mom. I've definitely heard people going with their mom to go see Magic Mike in Vegas. It kind of seems more like an event, like for a bachelorette party or to celebrate a divorce or something like that, which makes it feel first and foremost like a piece of entertainment or a communal rite of passage than like a very quote unquote charged Sexual environment. What do you think of that?
3: Yeah, no, I agree, and I think you know one of the dancers even said to me one time, you know, oh, my mum's seen the show, my nan's seen the show, my auntie's seen the show, the whole the whole family's seen it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but again, sets up this binary distinction between female stripping and male stripping. You know, male stripping is seen as something as more sort of socially acceptable it sort of presents it as more of a joke a little bit like is women's sexuality isn't treated as seriously you know it's like this sort of fun gimmicky show and I think it's interesting in terms of the new film as well I was also thinking in terms of the, the trailer it's on the high access Do you like Bartender? It's
4: not really what I do What is it that you really do?
3: you know and tatum's really sort of focused in on the skill of the dancing rather than the fact that this is erotic dancing if you see what i mean
4: why are you in london i'm gonna put on a show at this famous theater
3: you know magic mike but it's not in a strip club it's in a theater Hmm.
1: so a few years after magic mike came out we got chocolate city now
4: we gonna add a little chocolate
1: Which is, you know, a a movie about male strippers with majority black cast and starring Vivica A. Fox. The filmmakers said it was a response to Magic Mike. I'm from um, the Detroit area. I lived, you know, I live in New York now. I lived in DC for a while. Um, These are all American cities that have a considerable black populations. Um, Actually, (laughs) DC was called Chocolate City. Uh, And sometimes people call Detroit that as well. So for me, I was coming at the idea of male strippers from like a black club, black performers lens, which is what's presented in, in the Chocolate City film. How did Chocolate City treat male strippers differently?
3: One of the scenes in Chocolate City that sticks in my head in terms of like the differences between The representations from Magic Mike, in both of them, when they're doing the stage shows with the the dollar bills in Magic Mike, the men, they walk off the stage and they've been showered with these dollar bills and they've got some stuffed into the underwear that women have put in there. But there's, you know, they leave and there's still lots of dollar bills on the stage. Whereas in Chocolate City, the men go around and pick up like every last dollar off the stage themselves. I don't know, it sort of gave the sort of impression that the men were more dependent upon that money, you know, and it was less dignified, you know, if you can sort of go off the stage and you've got loads of dollar bills still on it, it sort of implies that you don't need the money, doesn't it? And it's got that sort of arrogance about it. That's
1: interesting because the main character of Chocolate City is somebody who's trying to pay for college through stripping. Like we understand at the beginning that he needs the money for his education, Mm -hmm. but similar at the beginning of Magic Mike, we understand that Mike also needs money. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And what's interesting in terms of gender, actually, in the UK is that it's not sort of, you know, all of the women that I interviewed... None of them wanted to tip the dancers because they saw it as not conventional with like gender norms. You know, they sort of (laughs) said, oh, it'd be unladylike if I tip.
1: You've really blown my mind with that. You've really blown my mind with that. Finding out that in the UK, women who go to see male dancers are not tipping at the strip club. Like all etiquette that I ever knew. I mean, (laughs)
3: they might do now. (laughs) They, They might do now. I mean, obviously my research was back in the early 2010s, you know. So, I mean, maybe conventions have changed now. You know,
1: you've mentioned several times um, throughout this conversation um, how the strip clubs that you visited through your research and even watching the films that you've watched that depict male strippers, you just continuously confronting these spaces that, in your words, are containing and regulating women's sexuality, that they don't actually take women's desire seriously. Talk to me more about that.
3: Yeah, I mean... There was particular moments that I noticed. Sometimes the hosts at the start of the shows would actively take the Mickey out of women. Wait, when you say take the Mickey, I don't know what that means. Could you um, take the the? Oh, I don't know how to put it. Yeah. Um, oh, make, make fun
1: of? Make fun is of? That... Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Make okay. fun of?
3: Yeah. So they would make have fun, a laugh. Is that is that a British phrase? Take the Mickey. Sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah. So they would actively mock the women. Um, In as part of their sort of way of riling up the crowd for the dancers, you know, they'd mock what some of the women are wearing, for example. You know, to me, it's like if you if you've got a space where you're trying to show that you're treating their desire seriously, then don't start off by mocking these women that, that have paid money to watch this show.
1: You know, we've been talking about how, (laughs) we've been talking about all of these spaces, both imagined and real, that don't take women's desires seriously. What is a place that does take women's desires seriously?
3: Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, I think that commercially it's very difficult because, you know, sex sells and and a lot of ventures that set themselves up as being about women's sexual empowerment um you know because they're also commercial enterprises ultimately sometimes they end up still buying into the same sort of stereotypes about what women's sexual pleasure is do i mean part of my phd i also looked at um lesbian strip shows and in those spaces the dancers were given a lot more freedom and capacity to do their own routines and they interacted a lot more with the audiences and they were able to like modify their performances based upon how they could tell the audiences were reacting to them. Whereas in the mail strip shows, everything's scripted by management or a choreographer who decides what the men are going to do each week.
1: Hmm. Hmm. I have one last question, though. Mm. Are you going to see Magic Mike's Last Dance?
3: Yes, tomorrow night. I'm, I'm going yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I can't wait to hear what you think <laughs> thank you so so much for coming on the show and talking with us about this today it's definitely expanded my view of something that I thought that I understood so thank you
3: that's alright thanks for having me thank you
1: that was Dr. Katie Pilcher a sociologist at Aston University in the UK my next guest is known for his role as a sexy and sinister killer Wow. Well,
2: hello there Who are you?
1: Stay with us.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: My next guest is also getting a little internet famous for his dance moves, but you probably first met him as Gossip Girl's lonely boy,
2: Dan Humphrey. You're completely unaware of your effect on me. And I love you because... You can be with someone like me and still be best friends with someone like Blair.
1: Or you might know him as TV's most watchable creep on a different show, Netflix's
2: You. Hello there. Who are you? Every account set to public. You want to be seen, heard, known. Of course, I obliged.
1: That's Penn Badgley acting as his character, Joe Goldberg, in the show You. The first half of season four came out this week, and let me tell you, it is a British, tweed, dark academia, who it ride. In case you haven't seen you, it's about Joe's quest for true love. There's just one little hurdle. He keeps on killing both the women he falls for and pretty much everyone else around them. He's a serial killer masked as a nice guy, and Penn, when he's not in character, is constantly denouncing Joe.
2: Have I mentioned that Joe is a murderer and he should not be trusted? Have I mentioned that? Yes.
1: I sat down with Penn to talk about the through lines in his work, from you to his role on Gossip Girl, and why he and the show's audience keep coming back to these bad men. Penn Badgley, welcome to It's Been a Minute. We are so happy to have you.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me, really.
1: To start off, you got your big break
2: on a soap opera, The -hmm. Young and the Restless,
1: which, like... Growing up in my home and also my grandfather's home, big CBS Soaps people. That was Oh, like, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. My right. grandfather was like he would stop anything for Young and the Restless. And I feel like Gossip Girl and you definitely have like a soapy quality to them. Of course, yeah. But yeah. your performances are still so considered. How do you balance like the high drama or even the camp mm-hmm. with portraying a really believable and complex bad guy?
2: It's simple to me. I just believe what I'm saying and doing. And sometimes it's hard because what he's doing is so wildly inconsistent with what he said. Yeah. But, you know, I guess that's where the the complexity arises. And I don't really think about it too much, to be honest. I I do the thinking after the fact Hmm. when I'm doing press, actually. (laughs) You know, to me, first of all, this show would not work the way that it does without the camp element. And so much television. I mean, to me, as a person who's been reading and making television scripts yeah. come to life for most of my life. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. Yeah, I think all television is in the realm of soap. I, I really do. I mean, I think even the best is still very much in that realm because to me, I think camp is actually kind of what makes everything palatable and actually makes it like who really wants to watch a murderer for you know, year in, year out. Right. But camp is what makes it Something of a fantasy, something of an allegory, something of an experience that really makes the whole Joe Goldberg thing worthwhile. Because, you know, again, you try to make this dude super real. Uh, he's just insufferable. Yeah. He's just insufferable.
1: Well, also, like, I mean, two thoughts about that. Like, one, it's really obvious that, like, you is in on the joke. I think that's what makes the show work. But also, I've been likening you a lot to, like, uh, I don't know if you've seen the John Waters movie Serial Mom.
2: I've not seen that one.
1: Oh, though. it's really, really good. It's really, really good. It's Kathleen Turner playing, like, a super suburban housewife mom who like, who starts killing people for, like, the most mundane wow. sort of etiquette offenses. Yeah, it's really funny. It's obviously super campy. It's John Waters. Of water. course, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, like, a similar logic to why Joe kills a lot of the people mm-hmm. that he kills. Because sometimes I'm like, oh, this is unnecessary. But other times I'm like, it's kind of annoying. Like, it kind of sucks.
2: Like, I like that unnecessary and kind of annoying are close – on the spectrum for you. It's like, that was unnecessary. Well, you know what? He's kind of annoying.
1: <laughs> this is why I'm not a judge, fortunately. But yeah, no, I Joe Goldberg reminds me so much of Serial Mom. You should check it out.
2: I, I will, actually. I'm glad to. This
1: season is set in London. And, you mm-hmm. know, each season takes place in a different setting. But, like, you know, Joe is this professor at a university or a college or whatever they call it in the UK in London. It's very dark academia. Mm-hmm. But something that I noticed is that, like, Joe always is hanging around the elite wherever he goes. Always. Always. And aside from being secretly a serial killer, he regards himself as an outsider. And he hates the elite, or he claims to, Mm -hmm. even as he kind of like slides into their social spheres. Mm -hmm. What about Joe's class positioning? And the danger he represents to the elite is baked into the formula of the show.
2: That's a really erudite... An elegant way to ask a question where I'm thinking like, Joe's a troll. There's a number of ways to look at it. So first, I think, you know, that which you hate, that which you're drawn to Mm -hmm. for your hatred. I mean, that's, you know, that's an obsession. That's a misinterpretation of feelings of love, maybe, you know. The last hundred years of storytelling, Western storytelling at least, are full of these kinds of guys who are drawn to the spaces full of people they Feel like they hate. Being drawn to this thing that you know is toxic, but you can't help, you know, a moth to the flame.
1: Hmm. It seems like that you writers realize that your character is most intriguing when paired with like a fellow killer, as he has been the last three seasons. Do you feel like your on-screen foils change how Joe is viewed by the audience?
2: I mean, a show like ours is conscious of the audience. It has to be. Yeah. There's two ways that I really like Joe, with another killer and with a man, actually, Mm. Mm -hmm. because both, both of those qualities reflect him back to himself more than he's comfortable with, Mm. far more than he's comfortable with, Mm. and that's when you get to the Joe you want to watch, the Joe who's like losing his, (laughs) you know, he's he's like I can't I can't I can't I can't manage this I can't manage (laughs) this I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to do something, you know, (laughs) that's the fun of it, and it's also the the cringe of it. That's. That's where the show, I think, just really rewards the viewer Um, and me as an actor. That's the most interesting for me.
1: You know, you said in the past that the show is about how far we'll go to forgive an evil white man. And with each season, no matter what Joe does, Mm. you keep watching. I keep watching. Like, I I eat it up. And, like, even sometimes, like, when I know Joe's about to kill somebody, (laughs) I'm like, there he is. My man is back. (laughs) my man
2: my my (laughs) family
1: exactly i'm like he's back which is not like actually how i i feel about those sorts of things in real life but it's like that means the show's working it's doing its Mm -hmm. job you know obviously people i go back and forth about how we feel about him as a character i'm wondering if you think the audience will ever fully condemn joe
2: no i i don't i mean (laughs) it's to, to me it's pretty straightforward like The reason the show works is the reason the show works, and I'm not playing him at all times like a seething, predatory, disgusting human being. You know, the whole thing to me is about love. I think it's about what we think about love. Mm. I'm not saying that it is love and that he is in love. I'm saying, to me, the whole show is an exercise in exploring the, the tropes of love stories that we're all so familiar with and then realizing in a way how possessive they are how they demand the objectification of each other not mm. just women actually but, but everyone like just that how our relationships are competitive and transactional hmm. in nature and not truly selfless and giving and then it that, that's a meditation on love like what is love that to me is really what the show was always doing and and then depending on the season There is this aspect of privilege and class and all this other stuff that is very interesting that Mm -hmm. it dabbles in. I do feel like the show becoming a success from zero to 60, you know, Mm -hmm. was an exercise in like, how far are we? willing to go to forgive a white man because everybody's just jumping on this bandwagon real fast you know (laughs) but but now to me that's not that's not what the i don't think that's the show's legacy it's it's we already know how far we're willing to go to forgive an evil white man
1: like you don't need to watch a tv show to yeah you know i mean right. right
2: we it's not a mystery we're willing to go this far this is a show about a man who murders people casually and uh and 14-year-olds watch it, you know. We gotta We gotta, we gotta, we gotta <laughs> tighten it up, guys.
1: Coming up, Penn on the cultural nerve, he hits in his roles.
0: Stick around. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have,
2: it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good
0: to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. You don't just live in your home. You live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, local amenities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework.
4: Jasmine
3: Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast.
0: Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of
3: people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.
1: You know, looking at all of your interviews, you are so verbally against everything that that your characters do. Obviously, Joe, but also like kind of Dan Humphrey from Gossip yeah, Girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and. I recently read, though, that you're also producing a movie based on a David Sedaris story that's, quote, about fixation and fantasy. It seems like stories along those themes are something that really captivates you artistically. Like, what is that
2: draw for you? I mean, it's an interesting connection to make, and I I agree with you in that I think my experience of being on Gossip Girl into you, the show— I think I've actually learned something that I was not seeking to learn and have become interested in something that I wasn't originally seeking out, to be, to be quite honest.
1: So you mean like from playing these characters, you've
2: I've started to think about these things more. Yeah, you know, like yeah. I, like I, like with Gossip Girl, I've been forward about it, and it's no secret. Like I, I really didn't want to do it, and I, I, turned the role down, and then it came back to me a month and a half later, and you know, I was a broke actor thinking about taking a job as a it's waiter, a bit, which I, which I was interested yeah. in, and you know, and it was a job, and I was twenty. You the show is interesting because it was the second time that I had had something of a a, a little mini break from my decades-long career and was really questioning whether or not I wanted to continue acting Hmm. for a number of reasons and it came along and I was like, well, this is a perfect example of why I'm not sure like, I I see that this is a great opportunity but I don't know that I want to bring this sort of person to life day in, day out for a couple of years
1: Hmm.
2: but what's interesting with Joe is that I feel like I've now, I've come full circle and I'm like I've now lived 15 years of this sort of cultural experiment Hmm. You know, on the other side of the line of celebrity, which is a very significant line. We all are influenced by celebrity culture and we Mm -hmm. live on one or the other, one side of the line, you know. And so I have now thought about, as you say, fixation of fantasy quite a lot Hmm. and what that does for us all. How those fixations drive us to imagine lives, our entire life, that we're never going to have. Yeah. We... Actually, can be quite sad and quite depressed, quite despondent and quite lonely our entire lives because we're actually living a more active fantasy life than we are living our life. Mm. This is encouraged and influenced by the media saturation that we have.
1: Absolutely, it makes it so that you can stay. You can like stay yeah. in that and, pl- and create yeah. like digital spaces that support you. Your concept of that,
2: right? I see it as being very central to modern Western life, at least, if if not. You know, all around the world, the stories I was really excited to tell when I was in my late teens and twenties, when I was like really concerned being an artist, they were not these, to be honest. And but now that I've been in this place for a while, I, I've I feel like I've stumbled onto a, a really significant like nerve, you know, uh, like a like a cultural level nerve, and it's and it is fascinating to me.
1: Kind of goes back to your point about the things that you see you, the show, as being about, like, kind of, like, what is the most, like, funhouse mirror way of looking at love and relationships? What is the most funhouse mirror way of looking at-
2: That's a great way of putting it.
1: power. And both of those things as we specifically understand them and as they show up in the culture right now.
2: I love that, actually. You just said it a lot better than I did. No. It's like, no, 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 I'm serious. Like, that is, to me, what it is.
1: I wonder, you know, are you having fun? Like... (laughs) You obviously don't like your character, right?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs>
1: but but after playing Joe for four seasons, is it easier <clears throat> now for you to wear his skin and at least enjoy the play of, of being Joe?
2: Yes, definitely. Well, definitely this season especially.
1: Why this season especially?
2: Like I said before, when Joe is interacting with another killer or another man, he's actually the most fun. He's the most react-like. He's the memeable Joe. You know, this is the thing. Look at the trailer for part one. There's one line. I have one line. I don't believe there's a single Mm -hmm. smile. How much fun can anybody have forced to be silent to give a mask to suspicion and hatred for, you know, something like 10 to 14 hours a day Mm -hmm. uh, for about six months at a time? You know, so despite all the camp and despite everything we're talking about, like at the end of the day, just to bring some kind of grounded Reality to my performance, I can't really think about all this, and I just have to be him. You know, I just have to just play him and be- and believe him. And so when I'm doing that, it's it's mm. it's also exhausting. You know, truly.
1: One last little question: You know what you're doing with those old dance videos that you're putting on TikTok, right? They have everybody just losing their minds.
2: Uh, losing <laughs> their minds is funny. I know what I'm doing. I do. <laughs> I do know what I'm doing. It's light and it's fun. It's, it's, it's lightly strategic as well. It's, lightly strategic. Um, lightly strategic. Taking my godforsaken fame into my own hands. Taking the reins of it, you know? I feel like you feel like you're
1: really making people look, even without your Gucci and your Louis Vuitton.
2: <laughs> I feel like. I was wondering how far you are going to take that. How many lyrics do you know of that? <laughs> <laughs> even without my Gucci on and my Louis Vuitton. <laughs> even with nothing on, I'm making them look.
1: We hope you keep on dancing. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But,
2: Penn, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks again to Penn Badgley. Part one of the new season of You is out on Netflix now. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by... Barton Girdwood. Alexis Williams. Jessica Mendoza. Liam McBain. Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is...
4: Jessica Plachek.
1: Engineering support came from...
4: Robert Rodriguez.
1: Gilly Moon. Our executive producer is Verolyn
4: Williams.
1: Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. I'm Brittany Loose. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org podcast.